Crazy Chester Radio Hour. My guest today is Jimmy Hall. Jimmy is the lead singer, harp player, and saxophone player with Wet Willie and a founding member. And he's also been Hank Williams Jr.'s band leader for a long time and has fronted Jeff Beck's band for a long time. And that's just him that you heard singing the, the theme song to, to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. So uh, thanks for being my guest today, Jamie. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's good to be here. We've talked about doing this, and uh, and here we are. So I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. Thanks again for doing this uh, theme theme song for me a little while ago. It's kind of catchy, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I guess it serves <laughs> its purpose. But uh, we usually, you know, start in the beginning of of your life in music, and I was curious. I know you grew up in a musical family, but yeah. what were some of your earliest musical memories? You know what? These days I think about those kind of things like what did I hear in my household? And I grew up in Mobile, Alabama, and, you know, way back then in the uh, 50s and 60s and whatever. Um, and Mobile was a lot smaller town, and so the, yeah, I'm trying to think. I, I remember hearing my mother sing around the house, uh, and going to church and hearing the church choir and that kind of thing. But um, musical memories of of gosh, when we first got a TV, and then. It's funny because some of the people, my dad was a big music fan. Now he more, well, my mother was more the musical one and she played piano and, uh, and in church and sang and led the choir, led the children's choir anyway in church. But um, my dad was more, he, he was a big fan of music and he liked to collect music and collect albums and singles. And I would look back at some of these 45s that we had in our house and going, well, I didn't buy them. I was like seven, eight years old when I, <laughs> when they were there. So it was dad and, and he just, he just loved music. So, and all styles, it was um, everything from rockabilly to jazz and blues and, and country. And um, what I was thinking about on TV was he gathered, okay, in my family, we had six kids. I was second of six. My older brother, Jack, two years older. My sister, Donna, is three years younger. And then they just stair steps down, three, you know, three sisters and then a younger brother after that. This was back, May, I was probably before my youngest brother was born, but Dad said, okay, I want everybody get around the TV. Everybody sit here and be real quiet because you got to see this. This is going to be good. And he was so excited, I remember it. And it was um, Elvis, I think it was Ed Sullivan. Um, and people can correct me on this because he wore, I just remember gold. He had he had some gold coat or something on. And... and uh, God, my dad was just like, I could just, I was watching him because I was going, my dad is so excited about this. He's like, yeah, check this out. You got to look at this. And we were watching this guy singing like a black guy and gyrating and moving around. Of course, I think on that show, they didn't really show below his hips. 
it was a little too wild for for us back then but um that was a musical memory from from my dad's side and Ed Sullivan, Ed Sullivan became a show we always watched and later saw the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and a, a lot of other good groups. But um, I try to remember when I first realized I could sing or that I had talent. And I just remember my mom and my dad saw it early on and encouraged me to do it. Um, and anywhere that I could, you know, my brother and I just sat around the house singing a lot of times. And as we got older, my older brother, you know, he had his own guitar. He got a, an acoustic guitar and uh, learned how to play it. And we would sing harmony or he would sing harmony with me or I would sing harmony with him. Just two parts like that. Just old. We got all these song books, you know, just folk songs, country songs pop tunes, whatever you could play on a guitar. And um, oh, growing up, I was in uh, in some of the school productions. I was in, this was a small public school, two blocks or so from our house, Mertz, Mertz School. And they had a, would have programs like, uh, oh, the parents helped do it, but it was a, a little fashion show. And so, they wanted some some of the students to sing, so me and this girl I was kind of sweet on, Susan Ruye, we sang Singing in the Rain, and we had to do little dance steps, and we wore little raincoats, you know, singing in the rain, and a little tap dance. I think that was about third grade or so, and then we would have a play every year, or a musical, and I was a, they did Hansel and Gretel, and I was just one of the, the Sandmen or something that put them to sleep. And then I got my big part in the fifth grade. We did HMS Pinafore. It was a Gilbert and Sullivan musical about the English Navy, and it's kind of a comedy. And I played Ralph Rackstraw, the lead, pretty the guy that gets the girl in the end, really. And we got to wear all these... <clears throat> naval British Navy uniforms that were well that had a straw hat and it had a little stripe top of the shirt and one of those kind of bib part or the white Navy shirt anyway and I really enjoyed it I, I found that I could the singing was fun that part came easy the acting was it wasn't that hard. I mean, we, we really rehearsed a lot, and I practiced all that at home. And uh, I just remember the night of the production when we did it that I was so excited, and I had fun, and people were applauding, and people were enjoying it. And it was an epiphany to me. It was like, I can do this. I like doing this. Maybe I'll do this when I grow up. You know, maybe this is something I can do. Because I... Mm, I wasn't much of an athlete. I I was tall and rangy and skinny. and um, I like baseball. I, I, I played some football, but I was just too thin to make any difference, you know. I didn't have a lot of aptitude or... Oh, we just did it for fun. We played baseball for fun. Some of my friends were on little league teams and more competitive. But music, that came a lot easier. And uh, so that was fifth grade and sixth grade. I took violin lessons. And um, I had a string teacher that would come once a week to teach mostly sixth grade students and uh, violin. And I had a pretty good ear since I was already trying to sing and could kind of pick out a melody, but I had a pretty good ear. So you have to, of course, the violin has no fret, so you have to you know, keep it right in tune and know where the the notes are. But it was rudimentary, basically learning the, the simple little Reuben, Reuben, I've been thinking, or these three-note melodies. The sixth grade violin, you know, I was 
even even my teacher in the sixth grade was a big classical music fan or whatever and she took me and some of the other students that wanted to involve you know she talked to our parents and said I want to take Jimmy and some of the other students to the symphony and she'd take us down to the uh, symphony concert and I mean sometimes I fell asleep but sometimes I was like oh I like the bassoon oh I like the the oboe sound or whatever you know I learned a lot about the classical stuff um even then but uh so that was sixth grade in the seventh grade all of a sudden they said well you can take strings or you can be in the band and in the band you could have this instrument this instrument and my parents especially my mom said oh they like the violin all right they thought it was kind of nerdy i know my dad did he didn't say well you maybe turn you know play the fiddle <laughs> but somehow oh they off they, they said well, they look at your mouth or kind of what your natural sort of the embouchure you have to make or whatever and said saxophone would probably be good for me or clarinet. My brother chose clarinet. He was two years ahead of me already in the band, so he chose clarinet. And I said, my mom said, I love the saxophone. I've always loved the saxophone. Why don't you do that? So she encouraged me, and then my parents bought me my first uh, alto sax, and uh, I wish I still had it, but it, it's it it has a sad ending the story because it was a beautiful uh, Mark VI, which is the best most yeah. sax players want to get a Mark VI alto or tenor, and um, and and this one was I mean it was in pretty good shape it, it had a big dent in it that that we fixed but. It was in good shape, and and I remember my parents paid three hundred dollars for it, and that was like these days that's a steal. But my dad said, "You better take good care of it because this thing I just paid. I could have bought a used car for that. <laughs> I could have bought you a car later on. Anyway, that was my first horn, and I I kept it for a good while. But later on, I kind of grew out of the alto and went to tenor." Yeah, then he also told me that story that you ended up with a harp yeah. for your brother. Yeah, so <clears throat> yeah, I played well, I guess I played alto in the in the uh, marching band all the way through junior high and high school. But you know, later on, listening to all the rock and roll on the radio, and and um, even by the, by the time I was about fifteen, sixteen, I had my first my first bands. Uh, little five-piece group that we put together. My brother had his his own groups, and they were already getting out playing concerts and stuff with people. But uh, my birthday on, uh, I turned 16, and my brother and I think his girlfriend, Sandy, who helped him too, um, they brought me this present and were so excited and said, I want to see you open it, you know, on my birthday. And I opened it and it was a harmonica. And I'd been talking to him about, to my brother, that I'd like to try to learn how to play it because I heard Mick Jagger. Well, I assumed it was Mick Jagger, but maybe... Brian Jones played it on Brian some Jones played it some. So it could have been him on Little Red Rooster. It was on one of their first albums, like Rolling Stones Now could have been on on that album. And um, so I open up the present in it, and it's a harmonica, but it's a a chromatic. Chromatic harmonica, which he paid a lot more money for. He wanted to get me a, what he would say, I want to get you the best one I could. And I couldn't make any sense out of it because it has the, little button if you've ever seen them they have a chromatic button where you go up a step if you push the button and that was a little bit too much for me to start with so I said listen get, go and and return this I you know I didn't think about maybe years later I want to play the same thing which I did but I said just go go return it get your money and <laughs> save some of it and get me 
one or if you want to get me a two of the tin hole, the, the smaller ones. I said, that's what probably what Mick Jagger's playing anyway. So we did, and, and I practiced, and really, uh, with no one to instruct me, there was, I didn't know a harmonica player anywhere around my circle, and later on ran into a couple guys that played it. So for me, it was listening to records, trying to emulate what I heard, and all I could get out of the harmonica was like, you know, just like a a four year old. You, you, you just it sounds like folk music. It sounds like you know Bob Dylan or whatever. He's just kind of huffing and puffing on it. And uh, so later on, I, I got a few tips from some friends and and people that I ran into and learned. This is cross harp. It's a fourth uh, away from the tonic, and you inhale to get the tonic note, and you inhale to get the you know the blue silent. I still play harmonica today. Yeah, and pretty mean harmonica too. <laughs> I, now, now I think I can play what I would say, uh, what I was expire, aspiring to back then, and just people that I listened to. Little Walter Jacobs, a Chicago player, played with Muddy Waters, and and had solo records and um, and. Um, Junior Wells, who played and was kind of a sidekick to Buddy Guy, and <clears throat> James Cotton. Some of these people I got to see live. I saw James Cotton in like 1968 at a pop festival, and really started listening to him. And um, later on, Wet Willie toured, and we opened up for him, and he borrowed one of my harps. <laughs> he said, "Up." I blew out my A harp. Can I borrow yours? I just gave it to him. Yeah. So you you just mentioned some of your influences on the harp. Who were some of the influences on your singing? Oh boy. Well, I'm list. I'm thinking way way back, you know, and 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 some of the guys that um, like Sam Cooke. I I, I was always. Into, into people that could, you know, mostly males that could just really, that had a good range and um, were pretty soulful. Um, but Sam Cooke was, uh, was one of my favorites. And um, Ray Charles, my dad bought the album um, Modern Sounds in Country and Western Music. And I thought that was... Just amazing because I'd heard country music and then I just to hear a, a black person sing it, it, it just made sense to me that it was, it, the songs were chosen so perfectly for Ray. They were just, <laughs> he just put a lot of soul in it, it just worked. Um, I loved Otis Redding. Otis had a lot of hits back in those years and when I was growing up. And, uh, and and of course it was AM radio and they played everything. AM played country and and pop and soul and you know I, I they played uh, was it Slim Harpo Scratch My Back yeah. or Jimmy Reed? Those all all had you know top forty hits that got on the AM radio. James Brown from the very start, uh, really really moved me and, and inspired me. Um, some of the first times I saw him was on uh, some of those Dick Clark shows. It seemed like Where the Action Is came on in the afternoon or Bandstand. And and I'd see James on there. And uh, 19, 1965 or so, it was 1965, a friend of mine, I'm still friends with him too. It's it's so wild to think about how we started. Even in grammar school, we're in same classes a lot, but in high school, he came to me and he said, "What are you doing Friday night?" And I said, "Not much. What's going on?" He said, "I want you to go with me. I got tickets to this concert." And I said, "Okay. Who's playing? Or what? Who is it?" And he said, "James Brown." And I said, "Oh man, really?" That's gonna be fun. That's gonna be. I loved it, you know, 
the first songs, even Try Me, and then uh, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag and all the hits later on. But it was at Mobile Municipal Auditorium, and uh, that was our, still is probably the biggest venue in Mobile. And I was a little bit apprehensive, but I'll say this. It was only because I grew up in the South, and I had I was anxious about being one of the few white people in a concert like that. But my friend Walter said, "Man, you're gonna love it because everybody's there for the music. It's not gonna be any, you know, any problem. We're not gonna get, you know." picked on or discriminated against for being the few white ones there. So we went to the show, and really we were, I could see maybe five or ten of us there, but everybody was so excited. And, you know, like I say, James was just getting started, and um, it was a packed house. And the opening act, of course, okay, they had, it was, it was the Famous Flames featuring Bobby Bird. And and they backed up some of the opening act, and and the opening act for James that night was uh, TV Mama, and it's funny because I saw a poster of one of those shows at a show I was at that I was playing in Orlando just a few months ago, and it was James Brown opening act TV Mama, and TV Mama was. And not that well known, but she was, it's kind of that uh, black vaudeville, kind of a comedy act. Yeah. She could sing. But she was really, really overweight, like 300 and something, 350 pounds. And she sang funny songs that made kind of <laughs> self deprecating uh, songs about, you know, all of me, take all of me, any weeny bit, teeny weeny bit of my love, and all this. And while she was singing, Bobby Bird was walking around, clowning around behind her, doing things like he had a tape measure and he was measuring her bottom or just her width and and making all these funny faces and people were cracking up. So that was kind of the kickoff. But James came out and people were, girls were screaming like it was the Beatles and and, uh, James just was electric and mesmerizing and was such an entertainer. I mean, certain points he just went back and, well, before he started doing his hits, he went back and played the organ on some songs, and he's a great uh, keyboard player. And then he came out and did all of this. Papa's Got a Brand New Bag and Try Me and Night Train and did the skate or his his version of the skate or the mashed potato, but it's where he skated across stage and, Soon as he did it, just I mean, it was like you had to hold my ears; they're screaming so loud. And he also, as he worked up a, a sweat and got hot, you know, up there, he started undoing his bow tie. He was dressed up in it's kind of a, you know, that that shorter, uh, I call it like a matador look, you know, because it had a shorter uh, waist, higher waist. Um, tux kind of sh- coat with a with a bow tie or a continental tie, and and you know cufflinks. So he would unloose the untie the tie, and it would be kind of hanging down. Then maybe he would throw that out to somebody, and then and then the cufflinks would come off, and he'd throw those out. And pretty soon he had the coat off, and you know he's getting down to business. But yeah. so you got a, le- a lesson in in. Uh, Performing and, and soul, entertaining and soul too. performance, dropping down on on or doing the split. He was doing that and and doing the spins and uh, just amazing what he could do. Yeah. So you mentioned that I guess when you were still in school. Yeah. You had your band. So did Jack. Yeah. What what made the two of you join forces? Well. In the very beginning, like I say, Jack's two years older, and he has a musical gift, just like a lot of my family. Um, he, of 
course, he played clarinet, and, and you know, we in the band, in the school band, learned how to, to read music and whatever. So I had appreciation or just to know the basics. But um, he, I can't remember when my dad bought this guitar. We still have it at our at our house where mom still lives. We, in, in our collection of stuff or, you know, kind of the hall museum, this original, I can't, I can never remember the brand because it's, you know, like a Harmony or, you know, one of the, Sears ones um, but acoustic guitar and Jack taught himself how to play it and you know how to kind of read the chord charts and everything and then got in his first band I'm trying to remember if he, he had a band before this but the one that really got some note, notoriety around town was called The Vibrations and they had um, a guy playing like rhythm guitar or playing some lead, Rob McConnell. He was a real kind of business guy and he helped kind of form that band and, and pick out the players. But they would play all kinds of little teen clubs and but their big big chance was they opened for uh, Eric Burden and the Animals at a concert at the auditorium and and Jack and his band wore uh, these beetle suits they, they found them at I don't know like what store in town would have something like that but it was like you could buy beetle suits with a no lapel on them and uh, anyway that was that was cool but I'd be hanging when, when Jack and his band would rehearse, the vibrations is what they call it, I'd be sitting around um, listening, observing, whatever, and every once in a while, I would, uh, the the subject of like, uh, what does Jimmy do? Is what is he got any talent? And Jack would say, oh yeah, he's a decent, he's a good singer. He's a good singer. And he would go, why don't you get up and sing, sing one? And so I got up and and would sing uh, some like high heel sneakers or you know an Elvis song or something, and, and just kind of show that I got, you know, I'm interested in this kind of stuff. But you know, he had his band, he was doing his thing. Then I started mine with some friends of mine and and some of my classmates in school. Some of the guys were in the in the high school band with me, and uh, the first band. That that I put together was called the Squires. It was S Q U I R E S. And just like all, if if we if you had a band back then, you went and bought the uniforms or clothes that look alike. You know, he said we got to have a look. I don't, you know, we started out with some kind of little denim uh, denim caps. They were kind of Carnaby Street kind of mod or something we wore denim caps and then matching shirts and something like that but um, but really to, to cut to the chase about Jack and I we had separate bands and then that band that I started um, we we were making headway in the local scene and playing around town and, and Jack some for some reason his group you know people they graduate school or college or what you know graduate high school and move on and some of his guys had moved out of town and he was in between bands at that time and he said well i can play bass for your band why don't i do that because I, I, well, I wasn't really happy with our bass player he had he was like a lot of the guys in my band. They were all members of the the high school band, and this guy played trombone, and he just wasn't serious about playing bass. I mean, he wanted to be in the band, but just to be cool or whatever he thought. And he was always kind of like showing up late and uh, didn't want to rehearse. So we hired Jack, and then <clears throat> and you know we played. Oh, it was like. There was a teen club in town, which is a rare thing now, but 
all for um, under 21, serves no alcohol, and they have a lot of adult supervision. But all the teen bands played in this little club, and it was only open on Friday and Saturday nights, probably like 7 to 10, and like I say, very much chaperoned or adult supervision. It's a lot of fun, though. And um, so, yeah, that journey, that path led to Jack and I putting these bands together, working together, and and handpicking the better players in town, trying to make, uh, just think about what's the best lineup we could have out of little bitty Mobile, Alabama, you know? What was, what's the name of that iteration of the band? Uh, it went through so many names. It, um, and personnel um, changes. Um, we had some crazy names. We we were called um, Carl Lafong for about a year or less because we were living in Fairhope outside of Mobile and in a rented house in a and there was a it was a W.C. Fields comedy album that had this character that he was playing that W.C. Fields was playing called Carl Lafong and so we named it. Carl Lafong, but the name that people uh, probably have heard before, maybe if they read a bio about Wet Willie, was Fox, the Fox. And we were called Fox before, for about a year before we got signed and became Wet Willie in 1970. So around the same time you guys moved to Macon, Georgia, what what made you guys move? Was that Capricorn Records, or or what was your connection there? Well, the way that all worked is it 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 was precipitated by or the idea that we're just trying to look ahead, and we didn't see much going on in Mobile, Alabama, for anybody in music. There wasn't a record label there. There were there were some little studios. We found studios. In fact, one of them, there's a guy named Milton Brown. Yeah, he was also involved with early Jimmy Buffett. Right. And so that, we knew about Milton and his studio in Mobile. And we, we, we used to go and hang out there. I mean, we just made connections because, like, this is what's going on in this town. This is the only studio somebody's you know, showing any promise of having any kind of hits come out of there. But um, there was a period where our little band with with me and, and Jack and, and the Fox um, were doing demos for Milton and, and another co-writer, the name Jim Ed. Anyway, uh, yeah, the other guy, he was a he was a guy that was a TV newsman. <laughs> but they wrote songs together, and they were kind of, some of them were really pretty bad country, uh, trying to be country songs. And it's so funny, I wish we had some, somebody's got the tapes of those things. But um, um, one of the titles I remember was called um, Sugar Free Woman. There's nothing sweet about you. Saccharine kisses. Oh, God. It was just really... Pretty. So did you end up singing those demos? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they were... They were... I, I don't think they were really paying us much to do this, but it was like if they wrote a song and said, okay, can you guys... Here's the lyrics and here's kind of how it goes. So they... We were trying to get our feet wet as far as recording. And learning how to do it. So we would do these songs. And every once in a while there was um, there was one that was almost like a... Like a, we're the youth. Or we're, the, we're, the, we're the future generation. It's like, 
We're the future generation, and we're going to run this nation when you're dead. <laughs> In spite of what's said. And these are older guys writing this for the youth or thinking about, hey, what would be the, you know, the all these new, you know, hippies or whatever that are around. Uh, what, what do they want to say? So they were trying to write that. But Jim, every once in a while, Jimmy Buffett was in there recording some of his early songs and just getting his his experience, getting his feet wet with um, what you know. He later ended up here in Nashville, and, yeah, and and he cut with, here and too. working with Norbert, and then and then there I was working with Norbert Putnam right after that. Yeah. So at that time, did you already dabble in songwriting at all, or did that start later? Um, <clears throat> just. Just the very beginning of of uh, of dabbling, really. Um, yeah, uh, I was writing lyrics and poetry and things like that, and, and um, just I was I think I was just unsure of what I was capable of, and so I I didn't push it that much until. Like the first Wet Willie album, I don't think I had any songs on, and maybe co-wrote one or two with Ricky Hirsch on uh, the second, and you know, on into the second, and third albums. But um, it's just something you got to keep d trying, and and, and it, it'll get better. You know, you usually get better at it. Someone say, No, no, try this. You know, why don't you? Uh, it's just something that you have to work on and 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 learn from those right you know ahead of you. We were talking about what led us to Capricorn Records. We were in uh, there for a while. We were in college, and uh, this was 1969 into 1970, and the draft was breathing down our necks, and the lottery came around. They they voted to have the lottery system for the draft and my brother and I both got high numbers and I think that was very fortunate with all that was going on in Vietnam and and um, we were avidly listening to a lot of music on the radio and what we could hear um, uh, or we were buying albums we were buying albums and listening to them Nonstop, just trying to learn. So one of the albums we bought and that was around a lot was the Allman Brothers' first album on Capricorn Records. And uh, uh, I always liked the blues, and I noticed there was there was some blues on there. Yet more um, versions of the blues that had good, great guitar work and good arrangements and. Uh, I heard Greg's voice, and it just, to me, it was like that voice of Greg Allman was just so amazing, and it, it, it was so much more soulful and bigger than somebody that I thought, well, he couldn't be that much older than me, but a white guy singing like that just said, you know, I'm white. I like singing like that. I can do something like that, whatever. I mean, he just... He was one or two steps ahead of me. Oh, the Allman Brothers were ahead of Wet Willie. But it's kind of made us believe that that we could do our own record. And why shouldn't we go to Macon, Georgia and see if we could get on that label? And there was a connection between Ricky Hirsch, sorry, guitar player, and um, a guy named Frank Friedman. And Frank is... Uh, was a guitar player, songwriter, kind of in the stable of Capricorn and the players and writers there. And Ricky knew him through. They went to they went to the University of Alabama together. They were fraternity brothers. And Ricky said, "Well, I'll call my friend. He's up there in Macon, and see if he could open the door for us, or he could make something happen." So Frank said, 
Well, I talked to uh, the label people. I talked to uh, to Phil Walden and Frank Finner, and they want you guys to come up here and and audition. So we packed up our van and and uh, and headed to Macon. And when we got there, we uh, I think we were staying with some friends at first, and then the audition came, and we we set up our equipment <clears throat> and Capricorn the guys the the label had a they had a warehouse it was basically just a warehouse but but it was also a place to rehearse and and they wanted me to audition there wanted our band to play so we set up our equipment played like a I don't know 45 minute set we played you know some of our best stuff some of it was original and they loved it. They just said, we hear a lot of promise in this, and we think this is like the American Rolling Stones. And uh, they they agreed. They, they wanted us to sign, and we did. And um, things started moving pretty fast, and we started working on our first album in, in, their, in their studio, which was kind of rudimentary. Um, you know, I can't remember if it was eight track even then, but uh, they, uh, you know, provided that studio for us. And once we got and and um, our producer was um, Eddie Offord, who also produced the second album, um, and he was chosen by Frank Fender and Phil, but Frank because Frank had a, a real he had been working for Atlantic Records before that. And Eddie was producing Yes, the band Yes, which is so different than what Willie ever could be. I mean, as far away as you could be from us, uh, stylistically. But Eddie was great. I mean, he, he had a lot of good ideas, and he let us kind of play our own way, and he just made it, got it down on tape, you know? Mm -hmm. Was uh, Jim Hawkins involved with those early recordings too, or did yeah. he just do the demos with you guys? Yeah, he uh, he was there, and uh, he was engineering, and um, he was a big part of it. In fact, uh, we might have slept on his floor or in his couch or whatever <laughs> in the very beginning, just to, uh, he he was just a more than just being an engineer and you know he was a friend and still is yeah one thing too it's like and i guess that's mainly your association with with capricorn records you get lumped in into the southern rock thing when yeah. wet willie was more of a rhythm and blues band to me yeah is that something you that connection that you actually embraced and you know, that helped you guys out or was it more of a distraction or something of a mislabeling? Um, the, just the fact that we were uh, lumped into uh, Southern rock uh, style or genre, whatever. Um, we didn't fight against it really at all just because it was popular. And, <laughs> you know, some people, that's just what they were going to call us. If we toured with... Uh, with the almonds and then with Skinner or with uh, Marshall Tucker, it was um, you know it didn't hurt us, but we did pretty much you know it was like damn the torpedoes we we like the soul and the funk and there we were surrounded by it in Macon. It was a soul town. It was where Otis Redding grew up. And and uh, Little Richard uh, came up through there. And Phil Walden had that. And Phil Walden too. had that you know, history with all these artists, and and had uh, his label and his management company, um, Arthur Connolly. Maybe uh, I'm trying to think of some of them that that he worked with, but they were all soul artists, and that was just. Uh, uh, a town that was the majority was uh, was majority black, and so it was a lot of it. 
on the radio and kind of out there on the street and we soaked it up and we were I mean it was the early 70s and God we just like that's I mean Soul Jones and Soul Sister and um, uh, Countryside of Life uh, and later on Baby Fat and there was just we were just you know Red Hot Chicken it's it's just funky soul music with some blues in there you know and you always found songs too that you guys made your own like Shout Bama Lama Lady yeah. Great St. Groceries <clears throat> exactly um, I didn't know about Shout Bama Lama until I think Phil played it for us but that song God, it's just a I don't know it was a little bit more like Little Richard in a way yeah, just uh, one of those hard driving, rocking soul songs, and it's still fun to you know to do that. And we also cut our little Richard song on that second album called uh, "You Keep a Knocking," but you can't come in. Um, and doing grits and and doing um, Lil Milton's version, you know, was was a lot of fun and became a trademark, you know. Yeah. When did your sister Donna join you guys singing harmonies? Um, you know, I don't remember them or you know the Williettes being there singing uh, until this, that, the Keep On Smiling album that Tom Dowd produced. Before that, I think I think they did a few overdubs, and I think my sister maybe. Did, did a few of those, but they were really featured a lot on uh, on uh, the keep the fourth album, Keep On Smiling. It, it came out in 1974, and then the next one was Dixie Rock, and that was both of those produced by Tom Dowd, yeah. and he really helped form that sound with the, with the girls. He he loved that, and you know featured them a lot. Yeah. Was was Donna still in Mobile at the very beginning when you guys moved to Macon, or did, did she make the move with, uh, with you guys? In the beginning, she was, and she would come to visit. You know, she was uh, three years younger than me, so she you know, was getting out of high school by the time we were in Macon for a couple, three years, and, and coming to visit, and then... Um, Initially, she got a job working at the label. She came up in the summer, I believe, and then and then got offered a job to work at the label. So she had some work besides just singing. But then once she was there, she became a background singer hired by the studio. And she sang on, I think she sang on some Marshall Tucker stuff. I know she sang on Kitty Wells, which to me was like, boy, that was a big deal. Because, you know, Kitty Wills was just one of the really big female stars of country music back then. But, she, yeah, she sang on some cool stuff. Yeah. On the Cowboy, I think she sang on some Cowboy stuff. Yeah, and some of Cowboy were also the band on that Kitty Wells. Oh, that's right. Record. Yeah, that's really wild to think about. And, uh, obviously, there's a lot more... We got to talk about. We have yeah. barely made it to the start of your recording <laughs> career. Yeah. And we're also already towards the end of our first hour. So I appreciate you, Ralph, to come back and and kind of keep the keep the story going up t till now because there's so much more For interesting sure. stuff just ahead. Um, we haven't even mentioned Jeff Beck or or any of you guys' hits. Yeah. With, because with, it, with it, Willie. It would, it would segue really well uh, when we start again to we we covered a, the first couple albums and then I talked about um, the Williette. So right in that juncture is where uh, we first met uh, Jeff Beck and, and went on tour with him. So yeah. that's a great place to start. Yeah, <laughs> we'll get to all that. Uh, would you mind taking us out with a tune? some sort a tune of some sort uh let's see this was on our uh first album um 
a little uh, Jimmy Reed uh, called Shame, Shame, Shame. my guest today and we'll uh, resume that uh, as, soon, as soon as we can and then we'll take <laughs> it up up to the here and now alright then we'll resume our conversation in the next episode where we'll cover Jimmy's success with Wet Willie as well as his solo years his collaboration with Jeff Beck, and much more. This was the 24th episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. We taped it at Creative Workshop Recording Studio in Nashville. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. Until next week. (laughs) 